Friday, June 7th here in Draft Shark Studios in Rochester, New York. Welcome to the Fantasy Football Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Schaff. With me as always, Jared Smola. Jared, I don't know about you, but I'm fresh off battling a preteen daughter. I'm ready to talk about the NFC West. I'm battling allergies, so is that sort of the same? I don't know. Sometimes it can be the same. Other times it is nowhere close. Other times it's the difference between allergies and a tropical storm. I'll take your word for it. (laughs) You'll see one day. It is player profile season around DS headquarters right now. We're posting some free samples on the site. You can find Julio Jones, Philip Lindsay up there right now. Uh, we will post more as the time goes, and then all several hundred of them will be up there behind the paywall for all DS insiders soon. There is a free expert draft recap from Jared up on the site right now. Those things usually hide behind the paywall as well, so I would recommend checking that out. Um, It'll help you decide whether you want to become a DS Insider, see the kind of info that you might be missing out on. And, of course, there's always the exclusive MVP board for folks who join up. You will have to get behind that wall to see exactly where we have dropped Todd Gurley to in our projections in recent days. But we're going to talk about the Rams' backfield today on this third episode of the projection series. We hit the AFC East already. We hit the NFC East before Carson Wentz got his fresh money yesterday. Now we're going to move out west. We're going to look at one of the most interesting divisions in the NFL this season. As I said, we'll get to the girly situation soon. But, Jared, we're going to start with the Arizona Cardinals, who really we've talked about a lot already. Yeah, and I'd say, you know, maybe out of any offense in the NFL heading into 2019, it's probably the one we know least about just because we have a head coach who has has never you know been in the NFL, has never called plays in the NFL. And we just have so many new pieces, including, of course, Kyler Murray at quarterback. Yeah, and there's... A lot of guessing that goes into that when we've got a first-time coach, a first-time NFL quarterback, lots of new receivers. So as much as we like to project based on what we have seen and know, there's not a whole lot to know in Arizona. So there's a lot of guesswork on this. But here are some of the things that we are working with as we make our educated guesses. Cliff Kingsbury obviously might be the most relevant coaching change in the entire league this year, might be the the biggest one. Um, What does his arrival mean for the Cardinals offense? I think the one thing we can say for sure is that the Cardinals are going to run more offensive snaps this season, which is obviously good news. Um, The Cardinals last year, 31st in the NFL in offensive snaps per game. Kingsbury's offenses at Texas Tech were consistently near the top of the nation in plays run. In his six seasons at Texas Tech, his team's ranked first, 28th, second, first, 10th, and 4th in snaps. I think he's going to bring, you know, that up-tempo stuff to Arizona, which is going to sort of, you know, lift all boats as far as the skill position guys go, and Kyler Murray, obviously. Yeah, you can question the wisdom of hiring Kingsbury as a head coach already in the NFL. I don't really care about that. We're worried about fantasy right here uh, and the upside on this all. You know, we'll see how his scheme works in the NFL, too. There's no guarantee that they blow people away uh, right away or at any point, but the upside on this Cardinals offense exploded in the offseason with the coaching change and with the new quarterback. Um, Speaking of the quarterback, even before his time at Texas Tech, Kingsbury was the OC at Texas A&M for one year, happened to be the the freshman season of Johnny Manziel. That team finished fifth in scoring, 16th in the country in plays per game. Manziel won the Heisman. In addition to strong passing numbers, he rushed 201 times for 1,410 yards and 21 touchdowns that season. 
led Texas A&M by 63 rushing attempts on a team that included Christian Michael in his senior year. So I don't think Kyler Murray is going to be Arizona's leading rusher this year, but there's at least some history with Kingsbury using such a dual threat quarterback. Yep, that helps. I also think Kingsbury, you know, based on his college offenses, seems to be a you know pass leaning play caller. All six of his Texas Tech teams ranked significantly higher in passing yards than rushing yards. Actually, all six of them finished top nine in the country in passing yards. You look at that. You look at the fact that they you know spent three draft picks on wide receivers. I think it's going to be a, a, a pass leaning offense this season, even with a rookie quarterback. Yeah, I would guess that as well. We'll move on to that pass run split right now. Um, the A&M offense that I mentioned ran more than a pass, but you know, part of that was having a running quarterback who was a freshman over six years at Texas tech, Cliff Kingsbury's teams went about 59% pass. There was some shifting late in his run there, uh, where he went a little bit more toward the run after Patrick Mahomes, uh, left, but overall 59% pass pretty solid lean that way. Um, Tom Clements also, he's not the offensive coordinator, but he's the passing game coordinator who does have years of NFL experience as an offensive coordinator in Green Bay and in Buffalo. And his offenses were also 59% pass when he was the coordinator. I I went with 58% in projecting the Arizona offense. Uh, I'm trying to incorporate a little bit of cushion for some pass plays that turn into uh, Kyler Murray scrambles in that percentage. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if we get 60, 60%, which 14 teams reached in terms of passing share last year. Yeah, exactly. I, I went with 59.5% pass for the Cardinals, um, which, you know, like you said, would have been right around league average last year as far as pass rate. So I could definitely see him being higher. Um, again, I think Kingsbury's history points to that. I also think, you know, this, this Arizona defense isn't going to be great, especially with Patrick Peterson now suspended for, what, the first six games of the season, is it? Um, so, you know, I think this, this could be a shootout team. The, the Cardinals, we could be, you know, attacking Cardinals games and we're talking about DFS lineups this season. We sure could, especially early before people have a chance to get ready for it. Right. Um, we'll talk about the backfield in a couple minutes, but let's hit on Kyler Murray again, which it seems like we've been talking about him on pretty much every other podcast uh, this spring. But I, we all know about the guy's upside and we've addressed that upside. This His final year numbers at Oklahoma, 69% completions, 11.6 yards per pass attempt, 42 touchdowns to just seven interceptions, and 140 rushes for 1,001 yards on an Oklahoma team that had two running backs go over 940 rushing yards. So he ran not because they needed him to run, but because that is also something he is very good at. Yeah, and 7.2 yards per carry for Murray last year, which is awesome, especially when you you know, you know consider in college uh, sacks take away from a quarterback's rushing yards. So, you know, that, that number would have been even higher if, you know, we're using NFL stats. Just, like, just to put that in comparison, 7.2 yards per carry for Kyler Murray. Lamar Jackson averaged only 6.3 in his career at Louisville, uh, the Sean Watson was 4.4, Cam Newton 5.6, just as a comparison. So you know, I think Murray has the rushing upside of those guys and maybe even more rushing upside than those guys. And he he brings that along with being at least, I think, a better or more refined passer at the same stage than at least Cam Newton, Lamar Jackson were. Uh, I guess you could argue him versus Deshaun Watson yeah. either way, but you know, you put all that together, the passing, the rushing, the Cliff Kingsbury play volume, and really a, suddenly a pretty talented crew of pass catchers that we'll get into in detail in the next few minutes. I mean, I think the ceiling on Kyler Murray reaches all the way to the top 
of quarterback right away. I think it's realistic to think that the range of potential outcomes includes fantasy seasons like Robert Griffin had in his rookie year in 2012, Cam Newton had in 2011. Both of those guys finished top four in QB scoring in their seasons. RG3 in, in points per game because he missed a little time. Yeah, I think that's definitely within uh, Murray's range of outcomes. You just look back last year, 4,000-plus passing yards, 1,000-plus rushing yards, only the second quarterback in FBS history to do that. The other one was Deshaun Watson, and we've obviously already seen the type of upside he's brought as a, as a pro. And the kind of upside he brought immediately when he when he took over for Tom, I'm blanking on his name. There you go. In the second half of week one. Um, The only problem, the only qualm I have with Kyler Murray right now in fantasy is that he is already being drafted with that upside in mind. He's up to QB nine and play draft ADP. Which I think is fair. Um, I think if he if he climbs much higher, I mean, because they talk about maybe, you know, there being too much risk with that. But I think at quarterback nine, you know, there's not many guys at that point of the draft who, you know, could really finish top three this season. Yeah, and I I would still take him there. I actually took him there yesterday in a best ball draft. Uh, I was hoping that he would not get further than QB 12 and ADP, yep. but what yep. are you going to do? On to running back notes where it's David Johnson, not a whole lot else. David Johnson, 42nd among 47 qualifiers in football outsiders, uh, DR and DVOA last year. That's both measures of rushing efficiency. Um 43rd in success rate, which is another uh, measure of efficiency that measures how often a player gets what he needs to get for the team on a specific play. Injured in 2017, back in 2016, David Johnson was much more productive, uh, rated better, no matter what numbers you're looking at. Even then, though, he was not a special back in terms of yards after contact. Uh, he has always been, I think, a better receiver than a runner for a running back. It, the pro football focus grades back that up. Um, I I think David Johnson's the kind of running back who needs space, who needs some offensive creativity, who is not going to be all that productive if you hand it to him in traditional running back ways over and over and over again and ask him to grind yards inside. Right. I agree completely. I think, you know, that that makes him really a perfect fit in what Kingsbury wants to do here. Um, Go back to that 2016 season. um, Johnson averaged 6.3 yards per carry out of the shotgun. Um, that, that number dropped to 2.3 this past year, but I, I think he can get back closer to that 2016 number. And it sounds like Kingsbury, you know, wants, wants to be in the shotgun the majority of the time. So yeah, I, I like the fit here for DJ. I think he really should bounce back this year. And with, you know, with maybe the only concern about Kyler Murray being his height, it makes sense to do as much shotgun as you yep. can. So yeah, like those numbers, um, on David Johnson, out of the shotgun and really he's going to be in for lots of touches as long as he stays healthy because behind him, we've got Chase Edmonds. We've got TJ Logan. Chase Edmonds looks fine. Um, 60 carries, 23 targets as a rookie, 6.2 yards per carry, 10 and a half per catch career, uh, in college. That was at Fordham. So you know, not the highest level of competition. We'll kind of see how he continues to translate into the NFL, but he's a smallish guy with average speed, strong agility testing. I'm not chasing after Chase Edmonds, even in a handcuff spot, but if the offense shows the kind of upside we think it can, then he at least makes sense as a late handcuff type of back. Right, yeah, I think the things he has working in his favor, he, he's the clear number two guy here. You know, I think T.J. Logan, you know, if he even makes the team, is more of a you know change of pace, pass catching guy. Um, Edmonds is behind a guy in David Johnson who you know has had some injury issues, and he, he's in an offense that you know we like to be productive this season. So I do think, as far as handcuffs go, you know he, he's one of the better better options if you're looking 
that direction late in drafts. Yeah, and Chase Edmonds, I think, is somebody who makes will make more sense as we get into lineup setting fantasy leagues than in best ball because he's not going to do a whole lot, I don't think, when David Johnson's healthy, but he's one David Johnson injury away from potentially high touch volume. Yep, exactly. TJ Logan, I mentioned, speedy, 4-3-7 in the 40 back at his combine two years ago, but he's also had more inactive games than touches so far through two NFL seasons, so he's got to prove that we need to pay attention to him. Yeah, and of course was drafted under a different coaching staff. I mean, he does seem like the type of guy who Kingsbury might want to use as like a gadget player and get, you know, two or three touches a game, but I, I don't think he's going to have any fantasy value. Yeah, I agree. On to pass catcher notes, we'll start with Larry Fitzgerald, who has been there for uh, 38 years now. He is coming off his worst catch rate since 2014. That was back when Drew Stanton and Ryan Lindley were the top quarterbacks for that Cardinals team. We also saw Larry Fitzgerald's target share drop by four percentage points last season, but it's tough to um, draw too much from that season when since 2018, we've seen Arizona replace the coaching staff, replace the quarterback. I mean, it's a whole new offense now. Right. Yeah. So we'll see, you know, how he fits into the new scheme here. Uh, Fitz did still rank 35th among 82 qualifying wide receivers in pro football focuses receiving grades last year, which, you know, tries to separate him from the situation he was in. So, yeah, I think there is still some gas left in the tank, but I think that that declining target share, that's probably going to continue in 2019, especially with all the additions the Cardinals made at wide receiver this offseason. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Larry Fitzgerald's, of course, declining at this point, but he's doing so steadily as opposed to falling off a cliff. And as you mentioned, he's still above average according to PFF grades. And I would I would say that his production and play, if you watch the games, agree with that the problem is that Arizona is suddenly quite crowded at least it's at least reminiscent of that 2014 team where Fitzgerald had 103 targets John Brown had 102 Michael Floyd had 99 Mm -hmm. I I don't I don't know if Andy Isabella is going to right away get to that Michael Floyd level but with Christian Kirk Andy Isabella uh, David Johnson, plenty other guys. I mean, I, I think that the targets are going to get spread around fairly thinly. Yep, I, I agree. I think that you know the days of 140 targets for Fitz are gone, mm-hmm. and he's not an explosive player at this point. So the, the the volume matters more for him than it does for a lot of other guys. What what will be interesting to see though is whether he remains a key red zone component, which he very well could. I mean, Andy Isabella is not tall. Christian Kirk is not especially tall. Uh, so I think that we could still see plenty of Fitzgerald work in the red zone and he's going at a reasonable price in drafts right now. Wide receiver 42 in the middle of round nine on play draft. Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, ninth, 10th round ADP from what I'm looking at over the past two weeks. So yeah, he's, he's fine. there, just not exciting. You know, he, he's a guy, he, he's a guy who's probably better in a lineup setting league just cause you know, you can maybe count on like four or five catch games for him, but I don't think he's going to bring much weekly upside. I agree. It doesn't have the ceiling that a lot of other guys might even in that range, but uh, weekly steadiness that's easy to keep in your lineup. Christian Kirk arrived last year, 19.3% target share over the 12 games that he played. Over the same span, Larry Fitzgerald's target share was 21.8%, so pretty close gap for a rookie versus a veteran. Um, Kirk beat Fitz in catch rate. He edged him in average depth of target by a, you know, a slight bit. Beat him by 3.1 yards per reception. So Christian Kirk jumped in right away. The challenge for him now is there's a new coaching staff that also chose to get a bunch of new receivers. Right, yeah, it was a pretty impressive rookie season from Kirk, especially considering you know the offense he was in. He he crushed Larry Fitzgerald in yards per target, 8.7 for Kirk versus 
six for Fitz. That that ranks 30th among 82 wide receivers with 50-plus targets for Christian Kirk. He also beat Fitz pretty easily in yards per route run. Kirk ranked 35th among those 82 wide receivers. So encouraging rookie season. Like you said, though, it's just, you know, how does Cliff Kingsbury feel about this guy? Does the fact that he took those three wide receiver uh, wide receivers in the draft, is that, you know, does that say something about how he thinks about Kirk or did, did he just like those guys? Did, did he just know that, you know, he's going to be running out a bunch of three, four wide receiver sets. So he needs bodies. We're going to have to, you know, keep an eye on that this summer. I think it's just a reminder that the Kingsbury offense seeks to drown all tight ends and make them non-existent. <laughs> I like it. He just wants to play five wide all the time. So uh, Christian Kirk is, is also just in his second season, so I think it's still early enough to look back at his college production. And he led two of his three Texas A&M teams in touchdowns. He trailed Josh Reynolds in the in the other season. Of course, Josh Reynolds now plays for the Rams, so it's not like it was a schlub that beat him there. Christian Kirk led that team all three seasons in catches. He led the team two of three years in receiving yards, again, behind Josh Reynolds the one year. So uh, a strong college career, a nice rookie season. Um, you know, there, there's no reason to believe that he's going to disappear in year two, even if he doesn't have quite the step up that we might've hoped before these other guys arrived. He's going right about a round ahead of Larry Fitzgerald mm-hmm. in P right now, wide receiver 38 on play draft. Yeah. And, and I think Kirk's definitely the upside pick among these, you know, Cardinals wide receivers entering his second season. Like you said, he, he was a nice prospect coming out. Um, I, I remember really liking his after catchability, and I know he, he racked up some big um, numbers in the return game too so you know that that would sort of seem to fit this Kingsbury offense too that you know maybe wants to spread the field and, and get the ball out to these playmakers I think you know Kirk can do damage after the catch Andy Isabella can do damage before or after the catch a guy you've liked since early in the scouting process for Dynasty um, working primarily in the slot so far for the Cardinals reportedly but I mean his speed's going to be on display wherever he plays yeah, I mean, he, he really checked all the boxes as a prospect. He, you know, massive college production. It came at UMass, obviously, but, you know, the, the market shares were huge. Then he tested well at the combine, ran a 4-3 something in the 40. I think the question was, you know, how highly the NFL was going to think of him. And then he goes in round two to the to the Cardinals. So, you know, they they obviously liked him quite a bit. So I think, you know, he again, he sort of checks all the boxes um, and you know, I think has a shot to, you know, be the number three target in this passing game right away. Yeah, I mean, to me, he looks like the the favorite to be. Well, I don't know about the the number three target with David Johnson, right? Everybody receiver. Yeah, yep. so probably the fourth in targets, but I mean, that could be a good spot, especially if volume goes the way that we're we're hoping it will. You know, dynamic player in college. On top of all the receiving production, he had forty carries for three hundred and forty two yards and two touchdowns. Uh, they're already writing stories about how notoriously hard. What a notoriously hard worker he is in practice. They're talking about how Julian Edelman is asking people about him when hanging out with, with Cliff Kingsbury. So the the legend of Andy Isabella is already starting to grow a little bit. Let's hope it doesn't get out of hand. But he's still late in round 14 and ADP right now. So it doesn't seem like it's getting out of hand just yet. Yeah, I think I think he's a fine shot to take. Uh, the 14th round, especially in best ball, because you know he is that big play guy. You could see him, see him having a few spiked weeks this year. Yeah, and especially if you can stack him with Kyler Murray in your best ball drafts at that point. Yep. Hakeem Butler also arrived in this draft class, arrived much later than most of us expected that he would. Uh, his wide receivers coach, David Rise, says that he's raw, which is the book on him. Um, they're going to work on his his route running. The thing Hakeem Butler brings is size. Looks like he's the best bet to be the wide receiver for this year. 
Right, yeah, you talk about, you know, maybe Fitzgerald playing a big role in the red zone because of his size, which, you know, Kirk and Isabel don't have. Butler does have that size, so maybe, you know, he he's sort of playing that specialized red zone role this season. Even as a number four wide receiver, you know, we talk about Kingsbury probably wanting to, you know, flood the field with wideouts. So Butler, you know, could see a decent amount of playing time. I still don't think, you know, in lineup setting leagues, I think he's he's basically not worth drafting, unless he maybe, you know, passes Isabella this summer. But, you know, in best ball, he's going to the 17th round. He, he's fine to take a shot on there. You could see him scoring four or five times this year. Yeah, I think he's Josh Reynolds. I mean, he's not going to make any sense outside of a best ball league. And then if one of the top three Cardinals wideouts goes sure. down and the offense is starting out the way that we are hoping it's going to start out, then Butler gets onto the 2019 radar. Yep. Um, they also brought – it's a crowded receiver yeah. core in Arizona. They also brought in Demir Bird this offseason. They brought in Kevin White. They drafted Keyshawn Johnson. They returned Chad Williams and Trent Sherfield from last year who were five and six in targets among Cardinals. So there are lots of guys. Obviously, not all of them going to make the, the regular season roster. Yeah, you, I mean, you wonder how many uh, wide receivers Kingsbury is going to keep on their roster. But, yeah, some of these guys are going to get cut. I think I think those guys like Chad Williams and Trent Sherfield who were sort of holdovers from the previous coaching staff, I think th- those guys are in danger of not making the final roster. I would guess so as well. Tight end also crowded Charles Clay. Rookie Caleb Wilson was Mr. Irrelevant. Max Williams gets another chance. And then Ricky Seals-Jones was the guy we were all excited about a couple of years ago. I can't say that I'm at all excited at this point. No, either am I. I mean, it's interesting that Kingsbury has you know added – you know, those three guys to, you know, to tack on to Ricky Seals Jones. But, um, you know, his Texas Tech offenses, he, he got the one big season out of Jay Samaro. Um, but other than that, they didn't really utilize the tight end much in the passing game. So I, I'm, I'm avoiding all these guys in drafts right now. For what it's worth, Ricky Seals Jones was at Texas A&M when Kyler Murray arrived there as a freshman before transferring to Oklahoma. So we'll see how long it takes for those stories to start popping up where (laughs) Kyler Murray is getting back with his old college teammate. But I I, I don't see anything either short or long-term. No, me either. Who I like. There's really no Cardinal I'm chasing hard just because of where the guys are going in ADP. Um, Mm -hmm. David Johnson started out late in round one and close to the one, two turn, but now he's in the middle of round one. I'm still taking him there, but you know, it's not like he's a screaming value as the number five running back. And then similar for Kyler Murray. I'm glad I got some of him early before he got to QB nine. I'm still drafting him, but it's a little tougher to say, go out and get Kyler Murray at this point. Right. Yeah. I, I, I would say though, draft Murray now, if you want to get him, because I think his ADP is only going to go up from here. I don't think it's going to go down. Yeah. Um, I, I also, you know, I, I want to invest in this passing game and I think all the wide receivers right now are fair prices. Again, you know, Isabella in the 14th, you know, basically free. I think he's fine there. Christian Kirk, eighth round, Larry Fitzgerald, ninth round. I think those prices are all fine. And I think, you know, getting some, some pieces of this passing game makes sense. And taking those guys in best ball, Kirk and Isabella in particular, I think is going to be more rewarding than doing so when you have to decide whether to start them week to week. Yep. I agree. Who I don't. Uh, tight ends, I mentioned, not touching any of them. Larry Fitzgerald, I, I don't, I don't hate him at his price at all. I will take him, but as we said before, I also think that he doesn't have quite the week-to-week ceiling of even other guys in a similar range in the draft. That said, if, if he's going up against people like Sterling Shepard, uh, Golden Tate, I mean, that's right in the range where he belongs. The same type of players. Yep. Yeah. I, I think Fitz is your target in lineup setting leagues and in best ball, you want to be targeting the younger guys, Kirk Isabella and even Akeem Butler. Yeah. All right. So let's move on now, finally, to the Los Angeles Rams, who everybody's been talking about because of Todd Gurley. We'll start, though, with the coaching changes. Nothing big. Quarterbacks coach Zach Taylor is now the Bengals head coach. Um, I, I wouldn't bet right now that that 
makes a big difference for the Rams. We'll see. And we'll also see if playing into the Super Bowl, spending more time playing football, you know, a longer time playing football without getting to the offseason means any sort of hangover for this team. Yeah, I mean, this coaching staff lost Matt LaFleur heading into this past season and didn't make a difference. It's it's still Sean McVay running the show. We know how good the offense has been under McVay the last two years. The Rams have finished 10th and then 2nd in total yards under McVay, 1st and 2nd in points. Um, they've been top three in situation neutral pace each of the past two seasons. So I think you can count on big play volume again. The Rams were third in total offensive snaps last year. I think, you know, that they're a good bet to finish inside the top five again this year. I think that I, I envision Sean McVay sleeping on a treadmill and he's got like a vending machine of young quarterbacks coaches who we just <laughs> right. like get the new one out every time somebody leaves. Sounds sounds right. Projected pass run split, the Rams were about 55% pass in 2017, climbed a little bit to about 57% last year. Each season, they they ranked among the league's nine most run-heavy teams. Mm -hmm. I think we'll still see a lean that way, but I think we'll see them toward the higher end again. I went with 57% pass for my projections. I have 58% pass. I I do think they're, you know, like you said, they went a little bit more pass heavy in 2018 than 2019. I think they'll, they'll, you know, shift a bit more towards the pass, um, you know, with, with Todd Gurley's knee problems. Yeah, I agree. And with Cooper cup returning um, QB notes, Jared Goff, uh, not a guy that excites me in real life or fantasy, but uh, top four in yards per pass attempt each of the past two years under Sean McVay actually climbed in that category last year with Brandon Cooks swapping in for Sammy Watkins Fourth and tenth in touchdown rate the past two years. His completion rate has improved each of the past two years. His passing yards per game jumped by 40 uh, last season. Big home road splits last year. Uh, but I, I don't, when you look at 2017 and you look at the loss of Cooper Cup in the second half of last season and look at the numbers for Jared Goff with and without Cooper Cup, uh, I don't want to overplay last year's home road splits. I think they the numbers there might turn out to be. Um, a little bit misleading if you if you yeah. use them too much to guide you. Yeah, I think if you look at most quarterbacks, you're going to find that they're more productive at home than on the road. So I think, you know, Goff fall, falls under that umbrella, but I don't think his home road splits will be as drastic going forward as they were last year. I do think the Cooper Cup, Cup splits with Goff are instructive going forward. I think getting cut back will help. And, you know, we have pretty big sample size here. In 24 games with Cooper Cup over the past two seasons, Goff has averaged 279 yards, 1.9 touchdowns per game. In 11 games without Cup, he's averaged just 251 yards, 1.45 touchdowns per game. And that, that obviously hurt him over the second half of last season. Cup should be ready for week one this year, which which, which will obviously help Goff. Mm-hmm. Now, for what it's worth, even though I mentioned overall the numbers don't say that he's he's terrible on the road and, and awesome at home, both of his two seasons, Jared Goff, did average a lot more passing yards at home. Uh, Last year, it was almost 100 more yards in home games than on the road. The year before, it was about 48 more yards at home than on the road. So Jared Goff, I do think, is a quarterback that you don't want to take if he's on the road in even like a slightly difficult matchup. I think that you want to look for somebody to start over him there, uh, whether it's DFS or lineup setting. And I, I mean, I think where you're drafting him, he's not going so early in drafts where you're taking him as like your every week starter. You know, he's right. a guy you're going to be playing matchups with anyways. Right. And that's, I think, important for evaluating all quarterbacks, not treating every guy like he's your every week starter. Yep. Running back notes. Finally, the Rams started the offseason by saying they were not worried about Todd Gurley's knee, even though the playoffs suggested otherwise. Then they matched the offer sheet for restricted free agent Malcolm Brown. Then they traded up 
in round three to draft Daryl Henderson 70th overall, which is pretty early in round three. So now we're left trying to figure out what to do with Todd Gurley, especially in these early drafts when we really have nothing except a smattering of uh, media reports to go on. I mean, for what it's worth, let's remember that Todd Gurley, when healthy, went on the field over the past two years, was a fantasy monster. Uh, 77.6% of the Rams carries over his 14 regular season games last year. He apparently played much of that with the knee issue that wound up limiting him late. Um, Then in the postseason, though, 32.6% of Rams carries. His target share dropped slightly, but his total targets dropped significantly. 5.8 targets per game during the regular season, seven total targets in three playoff games. You know, we'll see as we get into the summer about him. Yeah, I mean, th- there's no doubt that Gurley's workload is going to be scaled back this season. And, you know, we, we still have three months of reports to sort of digest before, you know, we get into the, the heart of fantasy drafting season in late August or early September. So, you know, we'll, we'll still we're still guessing more now than I think we will be later on this summer. You know, we, we do have Gurley's um, carry share and target share going down quite a bit in our projections right now. We haven't projected for a 58% carry share, a 13.7% target share in 14 games. You know, he's, he still lands inside our top 10 running backs. Um, you, know, you could slash Gurley's production last year by 25%, which is you know pretty significant. And he, he still would have finished sixth among running backs in PPR points. So I think as long, as long as that knee holds up and he's able to, you know, be on the field, even with, you know, fewer touches, I think you know he can be efficient enough in this offense. He can score enough touchdowns in this offense to be a top 10 running back. Right. The difficult thing and the thing that could really swing his fantasy value a ton either way is that he's been way above average in TD rate, both as a runner and a receiver yeah. over the past two years. So if he is not getting nearly as many touches near the goal line, that could make a huge difference. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's the kind of thing that we can't really – project no matter what we know at any point yeah and, well, and if I had to guess I mean again if his knee is good enough for him to be out there I think Gurley's you know role around the goal line is safe because you know Daryl Henderson isn't that type of back he's you know more of the, the smallish big play guy so I think if Gurley's out there you know he, he should still score a bunch in this offense yeah and Malcolm Brown is big he's the same size as, as Todd Gurley but he's obviously not close in talent level so I agree if Todd Gurley's playing regularly, I would assume that he is going to at least um, approximate his red zone role. Uh, Malcolm Brown missed out on the late season, missed Gurley time last year because he broke a clavicle on December 2nd, hit IR before Todd Gurley missed those two games and played a limited role in the playoffs. They did match the offer sheet. It was just a two-year deal, though, for $3.25 million. So, I mean, that's about $1.6 million a year. That it's not. It's not like that is split the backfield money. That's insurance money. And it came before the draft. So I don't want to forget about Malcolm Brown in the off season where everybody's fallen in love with Daryl Henderson, mm-hmm. but I also don't want to overrate his return. Yeah. I mean, I, I take it as the Rams basically chose Malcolm Brown over re-signing CJ Anderson, which, you know, would have pretty much come at the same cost. And you know, that that's significant because CJ Anderson was good in this offense. I do think the Rams are high on Malcolm Brown, and he has flashed when he, he's had you know opportunities in, in limited spurts. But you know, like you said, the fact that they drafted Henderson after re-signing Malcolm Brown, it's almost like Malcolm Brown was like the insurance policy. Then Henderson was this guy that they actually really like. They want to be a part of the offense. So I think Henderson is is the guy to be more excited about in fantasy and the guy who should see more touches um, You know when Todd Gurley's healthy. 
And Malcolm Brown really is a younger C.J. Anderson. They weighed exactly the same at their combines. Their 40 time was two hundredths of a second apart, 4.62 for Malcolm Brown, 4.6 for C.J. Anderson. So it's a younger C.J. Anderson. It's insurance on Todd Gurley. Now let's get to Daryl Henderson, who everybody wants to talk about. And, you know, who we love. Let's put aside the ADP now. 8.2 yards per carry career in college. 12.0 12.0 yards per catch. I mean, dynamic tape. You can, anybody, it's impossible to watch him and not get excited. Um, 63 receptions, eight career receiving TDs, even though he wasn't the leading receiving back on that Memphis team, which had a crowded backfield, three guys that got regular touches. Henderson still topped 1,100 yards each of the past two years. He ran a 4.4940 at the combine, which is 70th percentile among running backs. Third running back off the board in the draft behind only Josh Jacobs and Miles Sanders. Yeah, a, a big play machine. That That's what, what Henderson was at Memphis. 27 runs of 20-plus yards last year, 12 runs of 40-plus yards. And you, you watch the tape, and you see him running through some big holes, but he also finished second in this running back class and pro, uh, pro football focuses elusive rating. So, you know, he, he's making guys miss beyond what's blocked. The Rams obviously high on this guy, spending that type of, of draft capital on him. We're going to start hearing every offseason about new running backs that bring an Alvin Kamara element. I think Daryl Henderson is one of the very few players who absolutely could be another Alvin Kamara. Yeah. And I'm curious to see how the Rams envision using this guy. And even I think people are assuming that if Todd Gurley misses time this year, that Henderson's going to, you know, essentially step into that role. I'm not sure that's the case. I think, I think it might be more of a Henderson Malcolm Brown committee with Henderson's role, you know, maybe just growing a bit. I, I do think he, he's going to, again, I mean, we talked about Todd Gurley's volume getting scaled back this season, that those touches have to go somewhere. And again, I think that's where Henderson comes in. I think, you know, he, he could get six to 10 touches per game, even when Gurley's on the field. Yeah. I think he'll get the ball some, even when Gurley's around. I agree with you that he will share, likely share work with Malcolm Brown if Todd Gurley goes down and is not playing at all at some point. Sean McVay said around draft time that Henderson had, had quote, a specific skill set and could do, quote, unique things on the offense. So it's clear that he doesn't look at him as this, um, you know, straight running back who does running back things. He's a new weapon for the offense. Yeah, all, all that said, though, the ADP is, has already gotten on a hand, though. He's now going in the late sixth round. Um, so yeah, at, at that price, I, I unfortunately won't have any Daryl Henderson. I agree, and we'll get back to that in a few minutes because we'll. I think it's important to talk about the pass catcher notes first, and that is one of the things working against Daryl Henderson. The Rams are loaded at wide receiver. They get Cooper Cup back from an ACL tear. We'll have to watch him through the summer to see how that knee is, see if there are any surrounding issues, you know, hamstring or whatever that, that pop up. But for the eight games that Cooper Cup played last year, Robert Woods saw 22.4% of targets. Cup saw 22%. Brandon Cook saw 21.5%. So this is not an offense with a number one receiver and two other guys. This is a, a spread it around passing game with three talented players and, and plenty of production for everybody. Without Cup, Woods was a little bit further ahead of Cook's, 23% to about 20%, but obviously still close. And their target counts were essentially identical in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, the, the Rams have shown now over the past two years that they can support, you know, three top 25 fantasy wide receivers. I think they can do it again this year if, if uh, Cooper Cup's knee checks out. The, the one, you know, sort of mark in Cup's favor over Woods and Cooks, he seems to be this team's, um, you know, preferred target near the end zone. Um, in just eight games last season, Cup saw 12 red zone targets, seven targets inside the 10, 
Um, you know, uh, Robert Woods saw the same amount of red zone targets, 12 in twice as many games. Woods saw eight targets inside the 10 versus Cup 7. Uh, Brandon Cooks also saw eight targets inside the 10 versus Cup 7 display, playing twice as many games. So, you know, Cup, cup one healthy is the best touchdown bet among these three guys. Yeah, Cup as a rookie dominated red zone targets among Rams, even well ahead of, of Todd Gurley. Last year, Cup in eight games was on pace to get even more red zone targets than he got in 2017. So he's going to be an important red zone factor. He could be somebody that takes some scoring mm-hmm. away from Todd Gurley. Maybe they throw a little bit more down there with Cooper Cup back. In any event, all three are attractive fantasy options at, at wideout. Robert Woods is the first one on my board just because he has – uh, led in target rate overall over the past couple of years. I think he's, I don't even want to say he's safer. He and Brandon Cooks are yeah. very close together. Um, I have Woods just ahead. I will take both of them where they're going. Yeah, I have Woods just ahead too. He's ahead in, in our you know on-site rankings. And Woods is actually going behind Cooks right now in ADP. So yeah, he's my preferred guy. Woods is the the, the safest weekly better. At least, you know, he, he was last year. He had 12 plus PPR points in 14 of his 16 games last season only deandre hopkins and devonta adams had more games of 12 plus ppr points among wide receivers and the other thing with woods and really all these guys but especially woods um their rams like to hand the ball off to their wide receivers um woods ranked third among wideouts last year with 19 carries for 157 rushing yards so that that's a nice little bonus to his fantasy production yeah so i mean they all win on upside they all win on dependability i think the only issue i have is with is with cup uh, on the knee. So we'll watch him through the summer to make sure that's good. I'm not really comfy drafting cup where he's going right now, uh, which is what right about route receiver 19 or 21 early in the fifth round. I would be okay with that if we get to August and he's had no health issues. Yeah. I mean, cup only going two wide receiver spots and about six draft picks total behind Robert Woods. And if you're deciding between those two guys right now, even even when, you know, we know Cup's healthy, hopefully later in August, I think I'd prefer Woods. Right now it's not close when, you know, Cup is still rehabbing. The tight ends, they're, they're there, and you can consider one late. But <laughs> Gerald Everett, Tyler Higby, both still on the roster. I think they cannibalize each other's uh, fantasy upside. I think that they might be worth stashing in Dynasty right now, especially Gerald Everett, because Higby is in the final year of his contract. I doubt that with all the guys that they are re-signing and still have to re-sign that they will bring Higby back next season. So if Higby goes, maybe at least Everett turns into more of a fantasy-relevant player in 2020. Yeah, I mean, if we could combine these guys' numbers, I think you're talking about you know a, a tight end who could finish top 12, but it's it's tough to you know separate them at this point. Everett did out-target Higby, Higby 50 to 34 during the regular season last year, but then Higby out-targeted Everett 8 to 7 in you know, the Rams' three playoff games. So it's it's still sort of tough. Everett's the guy I would take late in basketball drafts. I actually have done it a few times, just you know get a piece of this of the Rams passing game late but I think you know especially when we get to to lineup setting drafts uh, they're, they're both tough to count on yeah if you're taking a third tight end late go for somebody who has some touchdown upside um, and for what it's worth on uh, alignments Sean McVay recently said quote I think you can expect us to still be heavy 11 personnel 11 personnel is three wide receivers one running back one tight end. So I'm sure we'll see some different formations in there that, that get Daryl Henderson in that maybe get both of these tight ends in at times, but primarily they're going to be those three receivers we were talking about. And if one of those guys goes down, Josh Reynolds among the three receivers and one running back and one tight end. Yeah, exactly. We didn't talk about Reynolds, but you know, he, he's the rare 
wide receiver handcuff. He has no value if Woods, Cooks, and Cup are healthy. But if one of those guys goes down, you know, Reynolds can be a weekly fantasy starter. Yeah, so I'm not interested in Josh Reynolds for best ball because I don't want a guy that's going to be useless most yep. of the time. Um, but lineup setting, I can stash a guy like that down the roster and see what happens. Yep, exactly. Who I like, I would say most of all, both Woods and Cooks. Uh, they're easily my top two Rams targets at this point. I will take both of them where they're going, and I'm willing to take both of them a little ahead of that to get them. Yeah, Woods definitely my favorite. Again, going behind Cooks. Um, Woods at wide receiver 18, Cooks at wide receiver 16. Yeah, both both fair values, but I, I prefer Cooks there. And then Jared Goff, I mean, I'm, I'm not falling over myself to draft him. He's at quarterback 12 in ADP, which I think is fair, but I've seen him drop to, you know, quarterback 15, 16. And in those cases, you know, when I'm still looking for my first quarterback or even my second quarterback in a best ball draft, he's definitely on my radar. Yeah. And he is somebody that I'm more interested in if I have taken uh, Robert Woods, Brandon Cooks, or even Todd mm-hmm. Gurley already. Yep. Um, who I don't like, Daryl Henderson, running back 33, which you alluded to earlier, second half around six and ADP. Right behind him, Latavius Murray, Rashad Penny, Ronald Jones, Royce Freeman. I will probably take all four of those guys straight up ahead of Daryl Henderson. And uh, to me, the comp is Austin Eckler, who's going early in round 10, because I think that both of them are complements as long as the starter is healthy. And I, I think that they're going to end up with similar workloads. And really, if I have to bet on either of them getting more touches, it's Austin Eckler, and he's going four rounds later. Yeah, I think Eckler is a good comparison for what we could see Henderson's role being behind a healthy Todd Gurley. I think the the marks in Henderson's favor and why I would take him higher, probably not four rounds higher than Eckler, but I do think Henderson's the better pick um, just because I think he's you know obviously a, a – bigger talent at least we think he is based on his college resume and he's in a better offense and he's you know behind a, a running back who's who has these knee issues where Gordon has had knee issues in the past but but at least he's healthy for now on to the San Francisco 49ers right now who have nothing nearly as interesting as Todd Gurley but they also have no relevant coaching changes from what I can see other than losing their quarterbacks coach yeah but which is good news because Kyle Shanahan's back and he, he's really been impressive throughout his NFL career as a play caller. He was impressive last year, especially considering the circumstances. The 49ers lose their lead running back, Jarek McKinnon, in late August to the torn ACL. Then they lose their starting quarterback, Jimmy Garoppolo, in week three to a torn ACL. The Niners still, though, finished 16th in total yards. They were 13th in yards per play, 15th in passing yards, 13th in rushing yards. So, you know, it was still a league average offense despite losing their quarterback and running back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, solid season for them, uh, considering all those issues. Kyle Shanahan offenses have gone as high as 65% pass. That was back in 2010 in Washington. As low as 47.8% pass. That was two years later still in Washington. Overall, his offenses have averaged 58.2% pass, a median of 59%. So that's the range where I think we should expect him to be. For the projected pass run split here, I landed at 58%. Uh, maybe that ends up being slightly low, but you know they added another running back. And they... they I think it's. I think I would rather lean a little bit further toward the run with Kyle Shanahan than further toward the pass. But I, that's that's a solidly balanced offense. I think. Yeah, I even read a fifty-eight and a half percent pass, which you know would be right around league average. You know, it, it, you have your starting quarterback coming back, which you know could boost the passing rate. But you also have a pretty loaded backfield after adding Tevin Coleman to McKinnon and Matt Breda. So you know they, they should run the ball plenty too. So I have him. I have him as a balanced offense this year. 
Yeah, and we'll talk about those running backs a little more in a couple minutes. Jimmy Garoppolo returns a quarterback from his ACL tear, 19.9 fantasy points per game over his eight starts with the 49ers so far. That average would have ranked 21st among fantasy quarterbacks last year, would have ranked 13th among fantasy quarterbacks in 2017. So we'll see what the 2019 quarterback crew uh, does in relation to that. Niners overall, their quarterbacks have ranked 17th in fantasy points in 2017, 20th in fantasy points last year. Of course, we had Garoppolo going down early and Nick Mullins playing most of those games. So I, that's a solid finish with that in mind. But also, they they haven't done anything outlandish yet. Yeah, and I think Kyle Shanahan's basically the argument for Jimmy Garoppolo because he's still largely unproven as an NFL starter. But you, know, you talk about last year, two and two and a half games of Garoppolo plus Nick Mullins and C.J. Beathard and the 49ers ranked 15th in passing yards, 17th in passing touchdowns, 9th in yards per pass attempt. So you know, that's pretty encouraging. I do think Garoppolo is very likely better than Nick Mullins and C.J. Beathard. So you know his production could be better than the group managed as a whole last year. I would hope he's better than those guys. And at the very least, he's quite a bit more handsome. Of course. Running back notes, there's not going to be a workhorse in this backfield unless two guys get hurt. Um, so the question is what it's going to look like. And we're probably not going to know for a while because a couple of them are still dealing with injuries, right? Yeah. Uh, McKinnon still was sidelined this spring after his torn ACL. Matt Breda tore a peck at some point this offseason. He didn't participate in, in spring practices. So Tevin Coleman was able to get a bit of a head start here. Coleman, of course, also spent a couple years under Kyle Shanahan in Atlanta. So he has familiarity with the offense. Did Matt Breda uh, tear his own peck or somebody else's? Hopefully his own, but I don't know. It'd be kind of a cool off-season story if he was just going around tearing other people's pecs. Yeah, just ripping pecs. (laughs) I think all three of these guys are arguably better receivers as running backs than they are runners. Um, They have all averaged between 118 and 132 carries per season in the NFL so far. They have all averaged between 33 and 48 targets per season so far. Uh, None of them has been a featured running back truly to this point. So they all have kind of something to show with what they're going to do in these roles. It, it could be the first chance though, for Tevin Coleman to really have a shot at being the top running back in his backfield in terms of uh, usage. I, I guess he got that last year after Devonte Freeman went down, but like heading into the year being that top guy. Yeah, I, I definitely think it is. Um, and you talk about the targets to the running backs. I think that's going to be probably the biggest change in this offense from last year to this year. The 49ers' top four running backs last year, and this isn't including Kyle Ustrek, but their top four running backs averaged, um, or sorry, total just 66 targets. That was 12.4% of the team total. That was way down from 20.4% target share to the running backs in Shanahan's first season in San Francisco in 2017. You look back to Shanahan's last two seasons in Atlanta, the running backs totaled 17.4% of the targets, 19.6% of the targets. So I think, like you said, all, all three of these running backs can catch passes. I think you're going to see more targets go in that direction this season. And, you know, those targets got to come from somewhere. It's either going to be from the wide receivers or maybe a bit from George Kittle. Matt Breida was Pro Football Focus's top graded receiving running back um, in 2018 and 2017. Jarek McKinnon was 10th on the list among running backs and receiving grade. Coleman was above average. So these guys are pass catchers. Uh, Brita had a, had a very efficient season last year, both running the ball and catching the ball. Better as a receiver, but efficient overall. And I think he's the guy to not forget about after two straight off seasons of the Niners um, signing 
fairly big money free agents at the position. Right. That, that's sort of the concern with Brady. It's like if you know the Niners like this guy, why why would they go out and sign Tevin Coleman and bring Jarek McKinnon back when you know the, the Niners could have saved? I think it was like almost four million dollars by cutting McKinnon this offseason, but they're bringing him back. So that that's the concern with Brady. But he's also the cheapest guy in drafts among these three backs. So you know that that's sort of the argument for him. Yeah, I agree. And we'll talk more about that in a couple minutes. Let's move on though to pass catcher notes now. And you got to start with George Kittle. Uh, why don't you recap his 2018 for us? Yeah, just a ridiculous season. The, the be- you know, one of the best tight end seasons ever. He set an NFL record by a tight end with 1,377 receiving yards, um, 15.6 yards per catch, just an insane number for a tight end. 16th best among 362 tight end seasons of 50 plus catches in NFL history. Um, I think you know that that's probably due for some regression. The the yards per catch um, might also again you know see a bit few fewer targets this season. He saw a 25 uh, 25.6% target share last year. That number could come down again. You know, maybe some more targets going to the wide receivers, more targets going to the running backs. I think the the Mark and Kittle's favor where, you know, he could see some positive regression this season is in the touchdown department. He scored only five times last year on 88 catches. That's a 5.7% touchdown rate. That's pretty low. You know, that, that, that could climb up, you know, closer to 10% this season. Kittle did rank fourth among all tight ends with 19 red zone targets last year. So he wasn't, it wasn't like he wasn't getting chances near the goal line. He just wasn't converting last year. Yeah, you can look at George Kittle's numbers last year and certainly find some spots where regression is possible. I think target share is most likely he finished 10th overall across all positions in the league in target share. The next tight end behind him was Jared Cook at 18.2%. So that's about seven percentage points behind. So George Kittle could lose like five percentage points off of his share, get down to like 20% and still rank among the top three at tight end pretty easily. Uh, And I think that I wouldn't bet on him getting above 15 yards per catch again, but last year I wouldn't have bet on OJ Howard Uh, repeating his 16 yards per catch. George Kittle ran 94th percentile 40-yard dash at the combine. He is a speedy tight end. He certainly has the upside to continue giving above average yards per catch. And as you said, there should be more touchdown scoring uh, as long as other things go similarly for him this year. This offense overall should be better when it has starters playing where backups were playing last year. Right, exactly. I don't want to knock Kittle too much. I mean, the guy's awesome. He's just entering his third NFL season. He's, you know, should be getting a quarterback upgrade this year. So, you know, even with, you know, what's likely going to be some regression in yards per catch, maybe a few fewer targets. Kittle is right there with Zach Ertz for, you know, the number two spot in the tight end rankings. Yeah, I think he's closer. I think Kittle is closer to Ertz than Ertz is to Travis Kelsey. I think the I don't. I don't think you're going to really find anybody who hates George Kittle. I don't think anybody's saying he's going to fall off this season. I think the question is whether you're willing to take George Kittle early in round three, near the two three turn, depending on where you're drafting. Um, so I guess that's my question: Are you willing to take George Kittle where you have to this year? Um, I am. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get Travis Kelsey as often as, as I can. You know, even in the late first round, anywhere in the second round. But if I don't get him, I, I do still think. Getting Kittle or Ertz, especially if they get into the third round, that still gives you a pretty big edge at tight end over your competition. Yeah, it's been depending on what I get um, before that to this point. I, I'll I'll take Kelsey in round one, like you said. Uh, I don't think that I'm taking Ertz or Kittle in round two, really. But if I like the picks that I've gotten at wide receiver or running back or 
um, both of those positions over the first two rounds, I'm willing to take one of those tight ends in round three. Yeah, I mean, when you start to get into like, you know, the the Adam Thielen range of wide receivers and like the, you know, carry on Johnson level of running backs, I think, you know, taking Kittle and Ertz over those guys makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, At the same time, I'm not jumping on Kittle in round three because I'm okay with waiting and taking Hunter Henry in round six or even addressing the position a little bit later too. Yep. Over at wideout, Dante Pettis had a better rookie season than we would have projected for him. Uh, Drew 17.7% of the targets over the final six games, over his final six games of the year before going down for the second time with injury. That stretch coincided with Marquise Goodwin missing a couple games, being limited in two more. Marquise Goodwin, for what it's worth, in his eight games where he played at least 50% of the snaps, he saw an 18.2% target share, so slightly higher than Dante Pettis. Really... Overall, uh, what I would say about this wideout crew is we have a lot to still learn about it because the injuries affected not only quarterback and running back, but wide receiver last year. Yeah, and I think 17, 18% target share, that's right where we have Pettis projected for this season as of now, you know, things subject to change, obviously, as we see how all these wide receivers sort of fit this summer. Um, But I I don't think he's ever going to be a a target hog at at wide receiver, but, you know, he he is that big play guy, like you said, was good down the stretch last season once he finally got over the the knee injuries he had early on. Um, Pettis was wide receiver 23 in PPR points over those final six games, you know, even on that, you know, kind of modest target share, he proved that, you know, he can produce as a lower end wide receiver too. Yeah. And Kyle Shanahan said that he thought uh, Dante Pettis improved with experience late in the season. So that's good, especially good considering that Dante Pettis missed some early time. I mean, he got hurt in week two and missed several weeks. So that, that could set a lot of rookie receivers back and kind of derail that, that debut season. So an impressive bounce back for him within that season. Um, Debo Samuel joined the team in the same draft range early in round two this year. Uh, so they got both of those guys in there. It, it's a crowded wide receiver crew overall mm-hmm. with Trent Taylor, Richie James, Marquise Goodwin, Jordan Matthews. But I think the two guys that we need to focus on are Dante Pettis and Debo Samuel. Yeah, it sh- should be. I think if, if it goes according to plan, how the Niners want it to go, those will be their top two wide receivers this season. And I think Pettis and Samuel kind of complement each other well. Again, I think Pettis more of the big play guy. Debo Samuel, I think he's going to do his best work closer to the line of scrimmage. He's really good after the catch. Um, you know, did some damage running the ball at South Carolina. Was good in the return game. So you know, he, he's just good in the open field. Um, so I think you know he he sort of fits as sort of that more you know Golden Tate type wideout where Pettis is going to be. You know, Mar- more of the Marvin Jones. Yeah, um, Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch both lauded his physicality, Debo Samuels. Uh, Shanahan also, though, says he has the speed in the hands to challenge uh, defenses downfield. So he sees Debo Samuel as an outside receiver who can threaten deep, Mm -hmm. who can open up things underneath for himself, uh, has the speed for that. Samuel actually edged Dante Pettis in yards per catch. Uh, 14.0 to 13.8 in college. Both of those guys topped 160 total receptions in college. They were both dynamic return men, Samuel on kickoffs, Pettis on punts. So I think that that speaks to the explosiveness and potential run after the catch ability on both players. Yeah, I actually compared Debo Samuel to Pierre Garçon prior to the draft. And you know, Garçon obviously played a couple seasons under Kyle Shanahan in Washington, had, had one huge season. He went over 100 catches. So I think, you know, again, that I think that's the type of role that Shanahan envisions for Debo Samuel in San Francisco. And that was not the only time that I saw him compared to Pierre Garçon. And, you know, it's worth noting that Pierre Garçon and Deshaun Jackson seem to fit nicely together in Washington. One guy who does his work after the catch and another guy who threatens downfield. Uh, I mentioned the other guys, but I, I, I need to see things sort out 
in the Niners wide receiver core before I'm really doing anything with Trent Taylor or Richie James in drafts later this summer. Yeah, I mean, with Kittle obviously seeing a bunch of targets, and again, I think the running backs are going to see more this season. Um, I, I'm not sure this is a passing game that can support three you know, viable fantasy wideouts. I agree. Um, who I like, there, there's nobody that I'm excited about right now. I'm fine with Tevin Coleman where he's going. I'm fine with Jimmy Garoppolo where he's going. I'm okay with Dante Pettis. I'm more interested in Debo Samuel than Dante Pettis at their respective ADPs. Yeah, Debo Samuel around 14 versus Dante Pettis round eight. I, th- I think Pettis is fine. I think that that's fair in round eight. But, you know, Debo Samuel going six rounds later seems like the better value at this point. Jimmy Garoppolo, you know, we were, we were you know, selling him last year because he was going, you know, inside the top 12 quarterbacks in the ADP. This year, he's down to quarterback 22. So I think at that price, he makes, he makes sense. Mm-hmm. I agree. Um, who I don't like, Jarek McKinnon is really one of the few players that I'm doing a total avoid on at this point. If he gets back healthy and he fills the role that's expected for him, then I'm fine with him late in the single-digit rounds. But at this point where he's not yet back on the field, and I don't know that he's going to out-touch Matt Breida this year, I'm skipping Jarek McKinnon completely. Yeah, I, I wish I could invest in the backfield because I do think it's going to be productive. It was productive last year even with the injury to McKinnon. But to me, Tevin Coleman in the sixth round, McKinnon in the ninth round, that's that's a bit too early. I'm not buying either of those guys at those prices. I do think Matt Breda in the 13th, probably the best guy to take a shot on at this point just because of that cheap price tag. I haven't been excited about Tevin Coleman at all, but I do think that if you want some pieces of this backfield, then right now is the time to go ahead with him because it, it's probably going to be a frustrating backfield to try to predict in season. Yeah, again, I think sixth round is okay for him. There, It just seems like there's you know, running backs um, I like better that are going around him, like Chris Carson, who we'll talk about here with the Seahawks. Yeah, let's use that as a transition into the Seahawks, who also have no relevant coaching changes. And that's because it's the second year of offensive coordinator Brian Schottenheimer, who arrived last year and told the passing game <laughs> to GPFO. Yeah, 55.6% run rate for the Seahawks last year easily led the league. The next highest was the Titans at 51%. You know, that that was obviously good news for the backfield. It was bad news for Russell Wilson. And it was just the second largest run share in Brian Schottenheimer's 10 years as an offensive coordinator across three teams. So he is clearly a run-favoring guy. Uh, overall, his 10 offenses have averaged a 53.4% pass share, 46.6% run. That's what I went with for my pass run split for Seattle for this year. Um, they swung from one of the most uh, run heavy teams to then passing more in 2016 and 2017, and then swinging all the way back under Schottenheimer last year. I think there's a little bit more lean toward the pass this year, but not yeah. a whole yeah, I mean, there there almost has to be tough to see him repeating that run rate this season. But I have him at fifty one percent run, which you know is what four and a half percentage points lower than last year, but still would have led the league. Mm-hmm. On to QB notes, where it, there's really nothing to like to dislike about Russell Wilson himself, yeah. but his offensive coordinator is working against him. And when you combine that with the depth among fantasy quarterbacks, it just doesn't it doesn't behoove you to chase Russell Wilson in drafts. Seattle scored the most QB fantasy points in the league in 2017. They dropped to 12th last year under Schottenheimer. They finished 13th in that category in 2016. They have now finished either 12th or 13th in QB fantasy points in four of Wilson's seven seasons. And that's despite a player who has had high touchdown passing rates and been a productive rusher. 
Yeah, I mean, if, if someone ever tries to tell you volume doesn't matter for a quarterback, just point to Russell Wilson last year. Um, he had 126 fewer pass attempts in 2018 than he did in 2017. He ranked just 20th league-wide in pass attempts last year. So he actually, you know, he did well to finish 10th among quarterbacks in fantasy points because, like you said, he is so efficient. He had a career-high 8.2% touchdown rate last year. I'm just comparing that to his career heading into last year. His touchdown rate was 5.7%. So, you know, blew that away. Um, Also worth noting with Wilson, career lows last year in carries with 67, 376 rushing yards was a career low, scored zero rushing touchdowns for the first time in his career. So if there's something working in Wilson's favor heading into 2019, I do think it's that he, you know, could bounce back. Um, you know, with that rushing production, he was still effective when he did run the ball. He averaged 5.6 yards per carry. Yeah. He'll always help himself with rushing, but I think less passing means fewer scrambles. He, he's not a goal line back, you know, like the the way that Cam Newton is and a few are the way that Cam Newton is, but Russell Wilson's a small guy. They're not going to look to um, design a whole lot for him running near the goal line. I don't think hasn't been a consistent scorer in that area. Uh, QB eight on play draft right now. He's going early in round nine. And then the one risk factor that we haven't even mentioned to this point is that he lost the receiver who led the Seahawks in targets each of the past five years. Over that span, Doug Baldwin saw 21% of Russell Wilson's pass attempts. Right. And over the past six seasons, Wilson has averaged 9.2 yards per attempt when targeting Doug Baldwin, just 7.5 yards per attempt when targeting everyone else. So it's a big loss. You know, they they added some promising younger guys in DK Metcalf and Gary Jennings, but they're completely unproven. I think, you know, beyond Tyler Lockett, um, there's not much we can count on, at least at this point in, in the Seahawks pass catching core. Right. They have talent. And when you compare it to last year where we had Doug Baldwin on two bad knees, maybe they end up being better off without Doug Baldwin around than with him last year. But it's a maybe at this point. We won't know until we get into the season. And it's just one other risk factor against a guy who's in the top 10 in QB ADP at a position where there are at least 24 players that we can draft. Right, yeah, I'm, I'm not um, touching Russell Wilson at his quarterback ADP right now. Running back notes, Chris Carson finished seventh in the league in rushing attempts last year despite missing two games. He ranked third in carries per game. He only carried 13 times over the first two weeks, so even with that, uh, he loaded up from there on. Was an efficient rusher, finished 13th and 17th in the two main efficiency metrics used at, at Football Outsiders. That's among 47 qualifying running backs. Ranked 15th in success rate. And it was not only him playing well, but the the situation helping him along because Mike Davis, who is, of course, no longer there, and we will talk about him in another show, he ranked 19th, 11th, and 14th in the three football outsiders um, categories that I just mentioned. So right near where Chris Carson finished. Yeah, this was just a super productive backfield last year with that efficiency and more importantly with the volume. Um, 448 running back carries by the Seahawks last year. Now, 112 of those went to Mike Davis and he's gone. You know, he, he saw 25% of the running back carries. So you're talking about Chris Carson and Rashad Penny this year, Carson could basically maintain the same role and then Penny could just, you know, tack on another 100, you know, 100 to 112 carries that, that Davis leaves behind. So you could, you know, see both these running backs top 150 carries this season. Yeah, I absolutely think that's um, that's realistically possible. It's not just a possible outcome. Uh, Rashad Penny, with Mike Davis gone, leaves behind 21% of the carries, 9.8% of the targets. 
I think the range of outcomes for Rashad Penny does include absorbing all of those touches from Mike Davis. It's also worth noting that Chris Carson has missed time each of the past two years and wasn't a feature back in college. So, you know, there's some durability question with him. Rashad Penny might be the guy that at this point I'm realizing I haven't been drafting enough so far. Yeah, and Carson had knee surgery this offseason, so he he missed um, spring workouts. It's supposed to be ready for training camp, but we'll keep an eye on that. And Rashad Penny, I mean, his rookie year was mostly disappointing just because he didn't get the volume, but he did average 4.9 yards per carry, um, actually edged out Chris Carson in yards after contact per carry. So he definitely flashed when he got the ball, and there's lots of opportunity left behind with Mike Davis gone. Was an above average performer in efficiency, according to Football Outsiders. And the Seahawks drafted him in the first round just last year. So they may have been disappointed in his conditioning last year. They may have been disappointed in his debut season. But clearly, they thought he was a special player. It's unlikely that that has changed so much. Uh, He has been, his conditioning has been praised already this spring. So I'm I'm talking to myself here. Need to draft some more Rashad Penny before there's a buzzy summer or preseason and his, his price gets out of control. Yeah, running back 35 right now. So, um, you know, I wish he was a bit cheaper, but he's he's definitely fine to take at that price. He makes a whole lot more sense than Daryl Henderson in the range yeah. of the both going. Yep. Pass catcher notes, Doug Baldwin again is gone. Led last year's team in targets despite missing three games. Led each of the past five Seattle teams in targets. So those are what's available to everybody else who's still around. Yeah, 73 targets for Baldwin, 23 targets for Brandon Marshall. Remember him? You know, he, he's gone now. So that, that's 22.5% of the targets from last year are available. So that's a decent, you know, chunk. Um, Tyler Lockett, in the three games Baldwin missed last season, saw 26.8% of Seattle's targets. That's a huge share. And it's obviously a small sample size, just three games. I don't think Lockett will, you know, finish quite that high in 2019, uh, but it's definitely encouraging. And I think, you know, he should be the clear target leader in Seattle this season. Yeah, overall, Tyler Lockett drew, I would say, a disappointing 16.4% of the targets when you consider Doug Baldwin's issues and the lack of steady other options at at any other position. Um, I do love Tyler Lockett, though, as a player, and we saw him perform with the kind of upside that we thought he had last year, the huge touchdown rate, the much bigger yards per catch than previous years. He's been working the slot early in in three wide receiver sets. He's been about a halftime um slot player to this point could see a bump there with Doug Baldwin gone Doug Baldwin's more like a 70 to 75 percent of the time in the slot David Moore Jerron Brown the outside guys so Tyler Lockett is clearly the top player and the top fantasy prospect among current Seattle wideouts yeah for sure and I I do think the bump in volume is going to be needed because he is going to regress in touchdown rate and in his you know other efficiency metrics from last year um 17.5 percent touch on rate last year compare that to just 6.6 percent over his first three nfl seasons he also averaged 13.8 yards per target last year which is just an insane number uh, he averaged 8.8 yards per target in his first three seasons that that's a good number that's a number he could definitely repeat in 2019 but you know that that'd be a drop of five yards per target from what he did last year yeah, how much volume he can pick up is the big question. It's not. It wasn't a high volume spot for Doug Baldwin. He only reached 120 targets once in his career. Um, only cracked five catches per game once uh, back in 2016. Baldwin averaged 4.7 catches per game over the past five years. That's a full season pace of 75. I think that's a realistic hope for Tyler Lockett. And if he does get that, 
I think that 10 touchdowns is a possibility, not a number that I'd necessarily um, write in ink, but 10 touchdowns is a possibility. I think he's uh, probably a thousand plus yard receiver at 75 catches. Yeah, I mean, he, he's been an efficient wide receiver throughout his career, especially, you know, when he's been healthy, maybe throwing out that 2017 campaign. And and Russell Wilson, obviously, you know, one of the most efficient quarterbacks in the NFL. So I do think Lockett's going to continue to be more efficient than average. It's just, you know, he, he's not going to repeat those crazy numbers he had last year. Going at wide receiver 21 on play draft right now, I think he is just fine at that range. I think certainly, I think the upside maybe doesn't go into the top 12 without some outlandish um, efficiency, but I think there is upside still from his wide receiver 21 spot. Yeah, I think he's fine there. Um, you know, it's it's a bit higher than I think we have him ranked. I haven't been drafting much Tyler Lockett. Like you said, I don't think his upside climbs into the top 12 just because he's you know not going to see 130 plus targets. But um, I think he, he's, he's a pretty safe bet just you know playing with Russell Wilson as the clear lead dog in this passing game. The rest of the Seattle receiver core has some intrigue, but I think it's going to need some time to play out. As I mentioned, it's David Moore and Jerron Brown working as the lead outside receivers right now. Um, David Moore flashed last year, but was a low volume, high touchdown rate guy. Just an exclusive rights free agent re-signed this year for minimal money, a restricted free agent. So we, I don't think we really know at this point how much Seattle likes him because they don't have to show it with his salary. Yeah, like you said, flashed last year, you know, 17.1 yards per catch. That's nice. But, you know, I think had a chance to play a bigger role with Doug Baldwin banged up and Moore was okay in the middle of the season. But over his final five games, four catches on 16 targets, he really struggled down the stretch, which, you know, probably doesn't bode well, especially after the Seahawks added two wide receivers in the draft. Seattle coaches are saying, or at least one Seattle coach said, that Jerron Brown is having a fantastic spring. So I think it's time for the, what, six-year vet to be the Damian Williams wideouts this year. Yeah, the, the old seventh-year breakout classic stuff. <laughs> um, all right, so we'll, we'll see if Jerron Brown is, is truly ready to stick in the lineup and be a factor for them, or if DK Matt, Metcalf knocks either of those guys out of the lineup, or if Gary Jennings, once he finally gets on the field, uh, proves that he deserves a spot and, you know, shuffles things at wide receiver. Really, uh, you could pick any one of these guys and say, I'll take him in round 18 at this point. Uh, it's I'm going to need the summer to know who I actually like yeah. and if it's anybody. Yeah, I mean, I, I think Metcalf has the best chance to be a fantasy factor just because of his size and athleticism. But, you know, he, even, even with the, the tight ends probably not playing a big role in this passing game, I'm just not sure there's enough volume to make anyone viable behind Tyler Lock. I mean, you think about it, even even you know in the seasons Doug Baldwin was healthy and producing, you know Seattle really didn't have a second wide receiver be at least a reliable weekly fantasy starter. You know, just because the volume is so low. Yeah, Tyler Lockett spent most of that time letting us down <laughs> with his production, with his dependability. Um, I'll, I'll mention the tight ends real quick, just to you know complete the picture. Uh, Will Disley's coming off a patellar tendon tear, which has been an awful injury for other players. Jimmy Graham comes to mind. Uh, Victor Cruz is, of course, the big uh, example there. Pete Carroll says he expects him to be back. We'll see. He'll come back to a a crowded spot, though. Ed Dixon's still around. Nick Vanette's the best bet, I guess, there. And they traded for Jacob Hollister after the draft. So, I mean, it's, it's a lot like the Arizona situation. I don't expect any of them to be fantasy relevant. Yeah, I mean, at least Arizona, you have, you know, passing volume to sort of lean on. You don't have that in Seattle. So no shorter long-term guys to like in the tight ends there. Who I like for this year in redraft, like we said, Tyler Lockett's okay, but I think I like more Chris Carson at running back 27 and Rashad Penny at running back 25 or 35. 
Yeah, definitely want to. Yeah, definitely want to invest in this backfield. I think Chris Carson is undervalued at ADP right now, and I think again, I think Penny's fine, and he could definitely beat that price tag. Yeah, and I think that even in best ball, uh, it makes plenty of sense to draft both of these guys, especially if you went wide receiver heavy early. Yeah, I mean, again, in the in the fifth and seventh round, one of those guys is going to beat that price tag, and I think it's it's possible that both end up beating their price tags. Yeah, it's it's it, it's quite possible. It's not one of those things that's a dream. I think it's absolutely possible, and you can put both of them in your roster because Penny can produce even when uh, Carson is in the lineup. And then obviously, if Carson goes down, you got the handcuff built in. Um, who I don't like, and I know that we agree on it, it's Russell Wilson. There's just little reason to jump on him inside the top eight with all this all this depth at the position. I've got Carson Wentz, Cam Newton. Uh, and I think I even have Dak Prescott ranked ahead of Russell Wilson straight up, and they're all going behind him. Oh, yeah. Uh, Kyler Murray, we have ranked ahead of Russell Wilson. He's going one spot behind. Yeah, I mean, Wil- Wilson's going two spots higher in ADP than he finished last year, and that was despite, again, a career-high touchdown rate last year, and he lost you know, his most reliable receiver in Doug Baldwin. So I love Russell Wilson as a player, but don't love his price in drafts right now. Yep, rooting for him, not drafting him. That'll do it for this edition of the podcast. Head over to DraftSharks.com now to see how we project all the players we discussed in this show, plus hundreds more. You can also find all three episodes of this Divisional Breakdown series, plus each new show that comes out after this. We will soon be adding hundreds of in-depth player profiles for all you DS insiders. Keep an eye out for that on DraftSharks.com. You can also find us on Twitter. We are at DraftSharks. Jared is at SmolaDS. I am at ShaufDS. It's S-C-H-A-U-F. For Jared Smola and the rest of the DraftSharks crew, I'm Matt Schaaf saying thanks so much for swimming with us. Thanks.